let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We dedicate it to you, and we ask that even my feeble understanding and my use of language will be somehow worthwhile in the kingdom that you are bringing into this world, even now and here, in this church and through this church in New York City. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom, and it's only through your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit that we can even ask for your help here and now. And so it's in your Son's name we say, Amen. All right. Uh, oh, I should. my publisher said I should show you a copy of my book. I have a pink book <laughs> that I specifically wrote for non-specialists. Uh, so I had another book that was thicker and for seminarians and grad students. Um, but they said, hey, would you write a 100-page version of all of that? So I, and they put it in pink. So it, I, I now only think of it. I can't often remember the title. I just remember it's the pink book. Um, but it's written for n pretty normal folk, you know, the educated lay reader who's trying to think through these things. Um, so last week I talked about ritual and the use of ritual, that, uh, you know, it's not just pushing buttons to make us feel better about things. It's not just, um, it's not just symbolism and representationalism and mental events, but it's actually meant to form us in our bodies to see the world differently than we could have otherwise. Uh, and so now I want to give a little biblical teeth uh, to that claim uh, and then next week I'll follow that up. But it's important for me, I, I mean, I do biblical theology for a living. So what that means is I work through the scriptures from beginning to end. Sorry, this is your beginning. From beginning to end and think, how is that idea broached? How is it developed? How is it worked out within the intellectual world of the biblical authors? Giving primacy to these ancient Semites because they might have had something to say and they might have even be, been instructed and formed and shaped by God himself and his Holy Spirit in order to say these things to us. So we ought to give them a chance to speak and not just assume that the Greeks came up with all of this and we can just spoil the Egyptians uh, and take the good stuff and run away. That the scriptures themselves might have uh, instruction for us and in even how we raise our children or do science or economics or other things. So um, let me just say that I think that what's going on in scripture when it comes to how we know the world, you know, the big question is, who knows what and how? And we, so we have to talk about the who, the what, and the how here, right? That's the big question uh, that we're all dealing with. So even when you get into this whole, I, I will not mention it beyond this, but this election cycle that we've been in, there was a huge question. Well, who knows what and how? Like, how do they know that for sure? And the conspiracy theories thrive on weaknesses in the who, the what, and the how, right? And they, they find their little niches within those spots. Um, and when I tell people, even biblical scholars, you know, when I say, what, they say, what do you work on? I say, I work on theories of knowledge in, in the scripture. And they go, the scripture doesn't have a theory of knowledge. And then I just very quickly walk them through some of the passages I'm going to walk you through this morning. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, they are doing, they do care about knowledge, who knows what and how. Um, and here's the question, if I could say, okay, who knows what and how is the big topic. Uh, the answer to that is, do you see what I see? That's as Christmassy as I'll ever get about anything, right? Um, do you see what I see? So let's think about for a second. You know, I want to just suggest, and I can do it naively, and we can give more details later, but I want to suggest that science, the scientific enterprise, is actually a really good way of knowing things. And one of the ways I know that it's a really good way of knowing things is because everything they do has some kind of practical output where they can point to and say, well, how do you know that? And they'll go you know, iPhone, uh, rocket to the moon, right? They can, you know, 
bridge, the bridge that you just drove over that actually held the weight that it was supposed to, but that's because we calculated that, because we, we know stuff. Um, and so they have a very special type of knowledge of the world, well, it's not that special, um, where they can say, the reason we know this is true is because it's true by reality over time and circumstance. When we predict the tensile stress of a bridge, I mean, forget about the philosophical impossibility of all of this, right? There, there's, there is literally zero philosophical explanation for what I'm getting ready to say. You can do a calculation of the tensile stress of steel on a bridge, and then that bridge will actually hold the amount of weight that you predicted it would hold by a calculation that you did by computer or paper or what's the ruler, slide ruler, right? There is no explanation for how that works at all. How you go from this abstract formula to actual weight on a bridge being held up, right? Uh, there's all kinds of mysteries like this in philosophy, uh, but let's just get past them and presume stuff works, right? So let's think for a second. Uh, we have two things that I want to talk about. Science uh, and the novice scientist. So science is an enterprise. How do they know stuff like tensile stress of a bridge? And then just think about, well, I want to become one of those scientists. I want to come and work amongst them. I want to be a part of that conversation and contribute. How would I be trained to enter that field? Like, how would I learn? You know, these people know stuff. How would I come to know what these people know? And when we come back to that question, it becomes a process of, do you see what I see? So we can think about it more simply. Uh, in communities where people need to learn stuff, I have four children, right? Um, and... Children need to know stuff, right? Because they're idiots. Out of the womb, they are straight-up idiots, right? They don't know anything. They're like drunken men walking around your house knocking stuff over, right? And they just need basic categories at first. Um, and if you've never done this before with kids, how maddeningly frustrating it is to teach them something like the color blue versus the color red. Um, and if I asked you, you know, what is the color blue... Okay, so you'd point to Charles's sweater, maybe my sweater. You can point to the chairs here, the fabric. Maybe to the sky you would point to and say, that's blue. And you can see how to a young child, they would look at you like you're crazy. Why? Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm asking real questions. Why? They're four different things. You know that they're four different kinds of blue. Kids don't know that, right, of a certain age. You didn't know that when you were a certain age. Not only that, but I pointed to an object called a chair. I pointed to some amorphous space up there called the sky. I pointed to a sweater. This is, this is actually all very demanding uh, intellectual enterprises that you're sending little children on. Uh, and so how do kids learn blue? I know exactly how they learn blue. I especially remember the first time that I went through this with my oldest, my son, where you just keep on going blue, blue, and you're trying to separate what philosophers call the accidental property of color from the necessary property of chairness or sweaterness or whatever, right? I don't talk to my kids this way, don't worry. <laughs> I'm like, now Benjamin, we need to separate accidental and necessary properties. We just say blue, blue, and we just keep on pointing. Do you see what I see? Do you, there's something like blueness going on here. When you tie all of these things together, there's some concept called blueness. Blueness isn't a thing. It doesn't exist in the heavens. It's just a concept we use to navigate the world. When we lived in Brazil, blueness includes purpleness for Brazilians. I don't know, or at least where we lived. It had a little bit of lavender in it. it took me and my wife a little while to figure that out. They include lavender in their blue. Um, so after a while, you, you hit what we call the eureka moment, you know, where my son brings in some toy that's blue, and he goes, Daddy, Blue! And you're like, yes, finally, we did it, right? 
Only took a month or so. And then he walks in with some other marker that's red, and he's like, blue? And you're like, oh, you know, all that work. Um, but then eventually, he somehow is able to separate. And, you know, here's what's real magical, is once they learn whatever it doesn't, I mean, I use blue as the example, but once they learn blue, then all of a sudden red and green and yellow and other colors come quicker. It's almost as if they picked up a knack for something. Not that they're making the same analytic evaluations every single time with colors, but they somehow gained a skill to start thinking of colors apart from objects and start thinking of colors as chunked up together in certain, what we would say, in certain wavelengths. So that my child, nor any person before 100 years ago, needed to know that blue, by most definitions, is a wave, a wave of light 475 nanometers between the wave peaks. Nobody needs to know that to know what blue is. Right? And even then, that's not a definition of blue. That's just what we've agreed is something like bluishness out there in the world. So let's go back to our novice scientist. She's trying to learn something like, I don't know, does anybody have a good, I always go back to my simple examples. Does anybody have something in science that's a little abstract, it's invisible, but you need to know it to understand something? A little abstract, yeah. Okay, quantum mechanics, I think, is actually a special case. Um, I think there's a very good reason tied into everything I'm saying as to why quantum mechanics sounds like nonsense to us. Not because it necessarily is nonsense, although it could be. We have no idea. We would never know. Uh, but not because it is, but because it sounds like nonsense. Uh, I use something like, did everybody take biology in college or something like so all, all the King students are like, nope, <laughs> did, not, did not take biology in college. Um, so, <laughs> peptides, uh, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I, the one I remember from biology that I really love was uh, cellular tonicity, like that things become hypertonic or hypotonic. It's just the, the lipid cell wall, which is lipid is a fancy word for fat, right? Uh, the fat cell wall, the water, depending on how much salt it has in it, will either go into the cell or go out, to, uh, out from the cell. And there's that osmotic pressure, right, uh, that, that determines whether uh, water is flowing in or out. That's, I just told you everything I know about tonicity, right? That was it. I ran completely out. But here's something else I know. If you want to learn about cellular tonicity, the question is, how would you learn such a thing? How would you come to know something? A, no amount of staring down a microscope at a slide with cells on it is going to teach you tonicity. You can look at instance after instance after instance, and that's, that's like assuming that my son is just going to stare at the world and figure out what blue is. Uh, he actually needs somebody over his shoulder going, do you see what I see? This is blue. Do you see the blueness? Do you see the blueness? Do you see the blueness, right? You need, uh, ho hopefully, a biology professor over your shoulder looking down the slide saying, okay, do you notice when we put this drop of salinated water on here, do you see what happens with the cells, right? Do you see the edge of the cells? Do you see how they're expanding, right? Do you see what I see? The, science, the, the expert already knows it. All they're trying to do is bring me along so that I can see what they see. Uh, my classic example is I had a collapsed lung when I was 20 or so, uh, spontaneously. And uh, I remember looking at the, in the light box at the film, you know, and all I could see was my spine and some ribs on there. And the doctor's trying to show me that I have a collapsed lung, which he thought was really important to show this to me for some reason. And I'm 20, so I am nodding along, acting like I see everything that he sees, right? I don't see a single thing he sees. I just see a black and white flummox on the, on the, uh, the film, right? 
But he's trying to, you know, here's the contour. You see this little deflated? I'm like, mm-hmm, 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 okay. Uh, but what he's trying to do is to get me to see. And the question is, how would I actually come to see what he sees? I mean, not only does he see a collapse, he sees all kinds of things. And this was, this was a, a, a moment of awakening for me. That he and I, I remember he was short. Sorry, that's not short. He's a different height than me. Uh, I remember he was pointing to all these things. And I just remember having this thought, oh my goodness, we're looking at the exact same thing. It's not like there's different data up here. It's the exact same thing, but he sees all this stuff that I can't see. He sees implications for my life. He sees the hole he's, he's planning on cutting in the side of me to stick a tube up in there to drain this, uh, this air out, right? He sees all this stuff that I can't see, and it's as if... At ma- now, he could be lying. He could do what I do in class sometimes and just talk as if I know what I'm talking about, but I have no idea whatsoever. You just fake it till you make it. But, uh, but I have no way of assessing that. If I want to see what he sees, well, let's just say, how would I learn to see what that guy sees? That's a real question, so that I can take a drink. Okay, and how would I become a radiologist? Let's walk it out. Okay, and then in medical school, what rituals? I'm going to pull us back to last week. What rituals would they put my body through so that I could learn the radiological arts, as it were? Okay, and how would I do that? By looking at, uh, so I actually know people who have uh, become radiologists, and they told me, you just look at hundreds and thousands of x-rays, but you don't look at them alone. Who do you look at them with? Yes, an expert looker, right? A radiologist. And they stand over your shoulder, and they say, do you see this? Do you see this? And, and, they, and you know, they told me at some point, and they also put in both positive examples and negative examples to see whether you can see when it's absent, right, to test you a little bit. Um, but at some point, you cross this line, like my son did with blueness, where you couldn't see it, and then all of a sudden you get it. I can see the collapsed lungs in here. I can see hairline fractures, right? I can, I can see, uh, you know, a, a break in the bone. Uh, bone breaks are pretty easy, I think. But hairline fractures, I'm told, are not so much. Um, and it's as if by magic you come to see these things, right? But just notice the components. If you want to be a scientist, if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be an economist, if you want to do whatever it is that you guys do and do it well and have discerning, skillful insight into the world of that thing, you have to submit to somebody else's voice, listen to what they're saying, look at what they're showing you, and over some period of time through an embodied interaction, you will come to see what they see. And when, they, when you do, we call you... You know, a radiologist, a doctor, um, an epistemologist, whatever it is, right? That's the basic premise. So now I just want to turn to Scripture and show you that these ancient Semites, and I'm including the New Testament writers who are also ancient Semites, uh, Jewish uh, people writing to other Jews with some of us Gentiles as the overshot audience, um, that they hold the exact same values for how we come to know the world. Uh, That there is an expert, there is someone who can guide us, And in order to see what they see, you must submit to that person's voice, often using the phrase, listen to the voice of or obey the voice of, is the the catchphrase in the Hebrew Bible that picked up again in the New Testament. And also the word see. I mean, there's been lots of studies on this, but in in the scripture, there's this interesting question. Why is seeing the metaphor we go to all the time for knowing, right? Because all the other senses work as metaphors. You can say... Do you grasp what I'm, what I'm telling you, right? The touch metaphor. 
Uh, you can sniff something out to see whether it's true or not. We use all the other senses to talk about whether you know something or not. But why is seeing the one that's so prominent? So turn with me to, sorry, I didn't tell you to bring Bibles, but um, turn with me in your minds or in your paper to Genesis 2 to 3. Because I also have this conviction that if something is true and worth knowing and doing, we should pro- oh, yeah, perfect. It is a church. Yeah. <laughs> um, that we ought to at least be able to pick it up uh, somewhere in the creation narrative. Or at least in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, And I'm going to move very quickly here. So some of this is, notice what I'm doing with you right now. I'm doing a big, do you see what I see? I think I see some stuff in here, and I want you to see it. And so we're going to metaphorically look and point and prod and see whether you can see it. I'm going to actually skip Genesis 2. One, the only thing I would like to point out to you, and by the way, all of this is in my book for $12.90. I actually don't, have no idea how much this costs. But I mean, if you are interested, um, it, it, it is in the book in a little more detail. Um, but uh, I would never ask somebody to read that. The uh, Genesis 2, though, uh, I mean, if you think about just this concept, uh, the, the tension in that story, the story doesn't begin until he says, until God commissions the man. He commissions him by saying, eat eatingly from all of these trees. First command is to eat all you can. Right? So everybody wants to put the first command as a negative. No, the first command is very clearly a positive command. Eat eatingly, but not of the tree in the middle of the fruit, uh, sorry, not of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. For in the day that you eat of that tree, dyingly you shall die. Right? Um, and then that's not where the story begins. Up to this point, it's all setting and background. The story begins when he says, and he looked at the man. Uh, hold on, let me just read it. Uh, verse 18, then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And you can't help but read that in contrast to all the, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was very good, and then he rested. And then the very first thing we read in this story of the, of the making of the man he looks at him, and it's not good. Right, so there's high t- uh, tension, which begins the story of him making. Now, notice the problem is the man is alone, and that's not good. You are, okay, if you know how stories work, how narratives work, what's the resolution? Yeah, the, no more aloneness, right? Okay, sorry, you pet lovers, but notice animals don't solve the problem of being alone. The man is still alone with cats, dogs, and everything else, right? Uh, Because there's a special type of fitting that's meant to happen here, right? He's supposed to have not just a mate, not just a Labrador retriever, but a fit mate. And notice the language. Well, the language is a little obscure to you here. The man gives all the animals, you know, that God is actually making out of the ground, just like he made the man. He's making these out of the ground. He's breathing the breath of life into them. He's making the animals alive. He's presenting them to the man. But notice the outcome is, um, well, they state this wrongly in the ESV. That's okay. I'm actually meeting with the editor next week. I'll tell him about this. He says, but for the man, it says Adam, but for the man, um, he did not find for himself, is what it actually says. He did not find for himself a fit helper. It's stated passively as if it just didn't happen, but it's actually more, it's reflexive. For himself, he didn't find a helper. So he's alone, and he doesn't know it. 
Yahweh makes animals, presents them to him, and he can't find a fit, a fit helper. And so then you get the next sequence where he takes and constructs out of his rib the woman. And again, he presents her just like he presented the animals. And notice this time we have it a eureka. He sees blue. He sees what a fit helper is. Then the man says, and by the way, notice that the very first words uh, of a human in the, in the, book, of, sorry, the book of Genesis is poetry, of eureka. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, which works in, works in English like it does from the Hebrew. She shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish. So her takenness is part of uh, what's so important about her as well. Okay, notice, now this is a little bit flimsy, so I'm not going to push it too hard. But notice that God guides the man through a process so that he can discover for himself who his fit helper is. He didn't say... Uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. Woman, there you go. Right? There's a process that has to take place <clears throat> in order for him to discover, which tells me that before the fall, before anything goes wrong, uh, God actually cares that we are discovering things in the world. That this is important to what it is to be a human. That we Sabbath, that we are, um, that we are in deep, profound relationship with other human beings, and that we can discover that for ourselves. And that resolves his... Uh, aloneness. Okay, so that's good. Everything's looking golden, right? They're naked and everything's cool. I assume that cold weather is part of the fall. Um, that's just my presumption. So the, the very first words of the next uh, passage, you know, now the serpent was more clever or actually you should say prudent would probably be a better definition there. The, the serpent is more wise than any other beast that Yahweh God had made. And notice what happens in this story. I, you know, in class, I, we drag through this very slow because it's a beautifully told story, horribly beautifully told story. Um, but notice the serpent basically sways the woman so that she sees that the tree is good for food and that its uh, fruit is desirable to make one wise, which again, that statement by the narrator of Genesis is irony. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 2, verse 9, every single it says specifically, and every tree that he made was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then there's this question, well, why is she seeing only this one tree as pleasant to the sight and good for food? Uh, and I think it's meant to show her foolishness. Don't worry, she will be joined very shortly in her foolishness. Um, so she takes the fruit, she gives it to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? Now, I play this little game sometimes when I feel like it in class where I say, okay, at what point did they sin, right? Let's just name the sin. And uh, after about 10 minutes, I, everybody in the room will have given me almost every single thing in the story. You know, she shouldn't even talk to the serpent. Or once she heard the serpent talking ill of Yahweh, she should have shut him down. Or, or she, she wasn't a sin until she took the fruit. Or it wasn't a sin until she ate the fruit. Or she, it wasn't a sin until she gave the fruit. Or it wasn't a sin until he ate the fruit. Or it wasn't sin until they were ashamed and ran away, you know, which is, you know, in a court of law, running away is an indication of guilt, right? Um, I just want to point out to you that the text only in one place indicts uh, a problem, right? So there's only one time where Yahweh himself says, this is what happened, this is what went wrong. I want to give a little bit of primacy to what Yahweh says went wrong, right? Like I say, when we're interpreting, you know, parables in the New Testament, Lots of interesting things to say about parables. But if Jesus himself says, and this is what the parable means, let's go with what he says first, right? <laughs> I mean, you'd be shocked how often we don't do that, right? My, I catch myself not doing it as well. 
So notice a couple things. Yahweh walks into the garden in the cool of the day because that's how he rolls. And he looks for the man only in the masculine singular. It says, where are you? So in the Hebrew, this is much easier to see. Only looks for the man. And when he finds the man, he only asks him in the masculine singular, um, where are you? And then he says, well, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he asks him in the masculine singular, who told you that you were naked? Now notice he doesn't ask him, how did you figure it out? You know, what clues did you put together? What syllogism did you work through? You know, premises towards a conclusion, right? Uh, he says, who told you? Yahweh presumes that if the man knows something, somebody else has stood over his shoulder and said, do you see what I see, right? Um, and we'll see that that is the form of his indictment. Um, and then he turns, and then, I mean, I'm assuming you guys know the classic uh, setup here, right? He confronts the man alone, and the man both blames God and the woman, right? It's not my fault. This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. What was I to do, right? And he turns to the woman, and he says, what is this you have done? And she says, it's the serpent, right? Everybody's blaming downwards, and the serpent silently takes the blame, never, never recuses himself, takes the accusations. And it's unclear exactly, you know, even at the end of the story, it's unclear, A, who the serpent is. We don't, we've never heard of this person before. Uh, B, it's unclear exactly what he did that was so wrong. If you want to pinpoint something he does, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what that is. Um, although I, we could, I think we could make some very good guesses. Uh, for the woman, he curses her. He curses her childbearing uh, uh, capabilities and her relationship with her husband, right? So your desire will be for your husband, and I would argue that it says, and it, the desire, will rule over you, not your husband. Although if you want... If you want evidence of somebody representing the family before God, it's pretty clear from the story, outside of the cursing, God comes to the man when stuff goes wrong. God holds the man specially accountable for what just happened in the scene. He speaks to him only in the masculine singular. Uh, so there's something going on there with at least representation of the scene. He curses the wife, but he never even says what she did wrong. Right? He, just, he just gives her the curse. It's only when he turns to the man that he says, because you did this. Um, and it's so easy to miss. In verse 17, and to the man, he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the fruit of the tree, which I told you in the masculine singular, not, not, not I told y'all, but I told you alone uh, not to eat of it. And then he curses his work, his labors, his ability to subsist on the earth through the fruitfulness of the garden. So right here we have all the elements. There, is, uh, there are two people trying to guide the humans how to know the world. The serpent comes in and is, is, uh, is a competing voice. I mean, the serpent almost straight up says, do you see what I see? Oh, you see fruit? You know, as John Calvin once said in his commentary on Genesis, he said, uh, you know, what, what's the deal with the fruit here? Well, as often as they ate from all the other trees, it was like their sacrament affirming their love and their care and their trust in Yahweh. Uh, so from eating from all the other trees, the serpent takes that fruit on the one tree and he turns it into from whatever it was, their sign of their um, loyalty to God or their trust in him, whatever it was for them, he turns it into a portal. It's access into a hidden world which Yahweh is withholding from you, right? And he, you know, in so many words basically says, do you see what I see? Uh, and, and here's the trick. How then do they come to see what the serpent sees? That's a real question, sorry. By doing what? 
Yeah, by eating the fruit, right? Uh, it's only by eating the fruit that they're, they're going to come to see what he sees. Let's see. I'm going to see how much time we can do this in. Um, that story is told and retold several times in Genesis. Um, but I want to turn to Exodus really quickly to show you the pattern persist. If I just ask a person on the street, what was the point of the Exodus? What are, what, if they even know what we're talking about, uh, what will they say is the point probably? Freedom from slavery, right? Okay, freedom from slavery. It's shocking that when we get to the end of the Exodus that freedom from slavery was not the point. That was part of the instrumental means that God used to get them where he wanted them to be. Uh, but it was shocking to me even when I was reading through this and studying it a little more closely. Exodus opens with a problem. Uh, and the problem, now if we've been reading from Genesis, it doesn't look like much of a problem to us. Uh, one problem is the Hebrews are being fruitful and multiplying. They're having babies like bunnies, right? They're spreading out all over Egypt, which... Again, the Pharaoh looks at it and he sees this as a problem. But notice coming right out of the book of Genesis, that's not necessarily a problem. We just, at the end of the book of Genesis, read a story about this guy named Joseph, who in Egypt's exact moment of need, when they would have otherwise had famine and starved themselves out and everybody around them would have starved, God, through his many machinations of, of his needlework in that region, brings Joseph down into Egypt uh, gives the king a dream, brings Joseph to interpret the dream so that Joseph becomes the wisest man of the kingdom and he averts the starvation of Egypt and accidentally, from Joseph's point of view, saves his own family. That was all in the plan of God, but he didn't know it at the time. He was just being faithful uh, to, um, to the work of Yahweh in Egypt at that time and by accident he saves his own family. So that Pharaoh could have looked at these Hebrews multiplying like rabbits and could have said, awesome, more Hebrews the better, man. The Hebrews have been really good for us. These people came and saved us in our day of need. So when you get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, you automatically know there is a problem here. Uh, so I want to suggest to you that you can get hung up on the issue of slavery, and rightfully so. Slavery is a problem. I don't want to cast it to the side as if it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's not actually slavery that's the problem. It's the inhumane slavery that's being foist upon them here. Um, as Bob Dylan, everybody has to serve somebody. In the biblical world, that is also true. Everybody works for somebody. So being what they would call a slave, we would often call an employee today. That's not the problem. The, the style of slavery, that it's like chattel slavery, inhumane, is the problem here. Um, and so notice the, the, the very first phrase after we get out of their fruitfulness and increase is, now there arose a new king, a pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. It's an interesting statement because this is several centuries later. Why would a new pharaoh know Joseph? Right? So it clearly doesn't mean literally what it says, that these people would have met at some point. It, it has to mean something like, well, we can make guesses here, but something like he doesn't know what Joseph did for Egypt. He doesn't know the story of Joseph and how Joseph saved them in their very point of vulnerability and famine. Uh, and that begins a, a story of reversing that problem. You have kings over Egypt who don't know Joseph, they don't know who Yahweh is, and they don't know why they should listen to him. And so Yahweh does all of these things, very famous things, poorly retold in many movies, um, as to why they should know who he is. So notice... When we get to chapter 5, 
And Moses comes in, and by the way, here's how I can say so confidently this is not about uh, slavery, because we know the words, Pharaoh, let my people go, 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 go. That's not where the sentence ends. Where does the sentence end? Yeah, so they, they may worship me in the wilderness, right? The purpose is not to let them go. The purpose is to bring them out to worship. And of course, as you know from the Torah, worship is a whole community, whole life. It's, it includes economics and commerce and living and how you build your houses and how you treat people, immigrants and everything, right? Worship is all-encompassing. Um, and so he says, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. Now notice what Pharaoh said. Have echoes of Eden, right, ringing in your ears here. Um, but Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice and let Israel go? I do not know this Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let them go. So this sparks a problem, right? He goes, I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to listen to his voice. By the way, the identical language, because you listen to the voice of your wife, this language gets repeated like a drumbeat throughout the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. So uh, my only question is, does Yahweh take that question seriously? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? Does Yahweh go, well, I'm fitting to show you who I am. Um, yes, that's exactly what he does. So you'll have to trust me here. Sorry. I, I mean, we could walk through slowly and I could show you. But there are a dozen instances in chapters 1 through 14 of Exodus that punctuate all of those plagues that say, I will do this so that Pharaoh will know that I am Yahweh in the earth. So that Pharaoh will know that I make a distinction between Egypt and between Israel and my children. So that Pharaoh will know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the arm. I'm down here. I'm not up in the heavens uh, like their gods or down in the, the realm of the dead. A dozen times, he says, so that Pharaoh will know. And then you get about four or five also, so that you, Israel, will know that I am Yahweh, your God. So you only get that personal relationship when he turns to Israel. So the question is, does God get uh, dis, uh, ruffled by the fact that he doesn't know who he is? Yes, and he sets on this task of making sure they know. If we had more time, I could show you how even the crossing of the Red Sea, any of these TKC students here can point this out to you because they've had my class. Um, but even the crossing of the Red Sea is bent, literally speaking, on showing you very clearly um, that Moses wants to make sure they know that it was Yahweh and not other gods who did all of these plagues and brought them through this Red Sea, even to the very end. Now, here's the, the, this is my snarky question. Is it possible that you could be a Hebrew in Israel, redeemed through this series of plagues, survive Passover night, watch the death of the firstborn, cross through the Red Sea, get all the way to the other, the other side of the Red Sea and see the dead bodies of the Egyptians and know that Yahweh fought for you and still not quite understand who Yahweh is and what he's done for you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, because as soon as Moses takes too long of a walk away up a mountain, they go to Aaron, or at least some subset, 3,000 or more people go to Aaron and say, build for us a God. And then they say, not Aaron, they say, hear, O Israel, are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Presumably referring to Yahweh up on the mountain and the golden calf uh, down here. Um, so is the Exodus about who knows what and how? Yes. Just notice the who knows what. It's what Egypt needs to know about Yahweh and their relationship to Israel and what Israel needs to know about Yahweh and their relationship to him. Um, and then notice the how here is also a very public 
communal ritual process that he is bringing them through. And notice the rituals also get sewn in here so that Passover is both an event that's separate from the ritual that they will celebrate every year to remember the event. So it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament <clears throat> that you have Jesus on Passover night or the night before Passover, depending on which gospel you're reading, but around the Passover, having a Passover meal with his disciples and separating that meal from there's the event that happens on that night with Jesus, right, the, the Paschal Lamb, from the memorial service. I'm saying memorial here in, in very non-mental uh, uh, ways, right? From the ceremony they're going to celebrate as often as you gather together uh, to remind themselves in their bodies, right? Notice he doesn't say, you know, just close your eyes and bow your head and just think real hard about what Jesus has done for you. He actually makes us do this weird ceremony uh, that we have to do when we gather together. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, we're, we're just about out of time. There's so many more places I would love to take you in Scripture. Um, maybe I can take you one more, just real quickly. Mark, my favorite gospel because it's the shortest. And I do mean that. As my students know, I value uh, concisely written essays over uh, wordy essays. It is a gospel, and the efficient use of language is amazing in all of these biblical stories. Um, so, of the, of the million things that I would love to show you in, the, in just Mark's gospel, um, we'll just look at this one thing. The disciples have been called. They have followed Jesus around. They've seen him multiply bread, even when he seemingly expected them to be able to do this. Um, he speaks in parables, and they say, what's up with these parables? And he turns them and says, well, I speak to everybody on the outside in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah, you know, having eyes they won't see, having ears they won't hear, let, hear lest they repent and be healed, right? And for us, we're like, wait, what? Did Jesus just say he's speaking in riddles so that people will not turn from their ways and be healed by God? Yes, uh, very clearly he's saying. Uh, but then he turns to his disciples and says, but I'm speaking to you uh, because the secrets of the kingdom of God are going to be revealed to y'all, the disciples, right? So notice what he's doing there. Knowledge of the kingdom of God is not egalitarian. It's not for everyone instantly at all times. It's not some own singular principle that you just need to get on board with. It's actually uh, a very robust idea that penetrates the universe and so he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to teach this to everybody. He says, I'm going to teach some leaders, some experts, that at the proper time and place and through the coming of the Holy Spirit are able going to, be, to stand over the shoulders of the church and say, do you see what we see? I mean, Peter's speech at Pentecost is precisely this. You think you see drunken people? Let me, let me interpret for you what you're seeing here. And thousands on that day uh, were guided by both Peter's words and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to assume. Um, and they came to see what Peter saw, even if they only saw it in kernel form or got a glimpse of it. When they saw it, they knew it, and it cut them to the hearts. So uh, before all of that, if we can back up to this one story, um, the disciples have been sent out. They've cast out demons. They've watched all these miracles. They've been rolling through the country with Jesus, the Messianic, the third Messianic king of Israel, right after Saul and uh, David. And, um, and so... He says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, you know, John. Some people think that you're Elijah. Who do you say I am? And, and Peter goes, you know, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he's like, good job. And he goes, and because I'm the Messiah, 
I'm going to have to suffer and die and be executed publicly. And then notice what Peter does. He pulls him aside and rebukes. This is very harsh language in the Greek. He rebukes Jesus, basically taking on the, the mantle of expert and saying, no, you've got it wrong. You have misunderstood the role of the Messiah, which you, you guys probably know the reasons why he thinks that. And then Jesus uh, turns, and Mark is funny on this point. He goes, and he spoke plainly, right, and tells him, not only am I going to suffer and die, but all y'all are going to suffer and die, right? Uh, and then he takes Peter uh, and the brothers of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, up onto the mountain to the transfiguration, right? And we all think of this as this big visual event. I just want to point out to you that the text does not make the visual event the, the scene, right? So when you read the story, he gets to the top. Okay, I'm not going to rehearse the whole story. They get up to the top. Elijah and Moses are up there. How they knew it was Elijah and Moses, I have no idea. If they're wearing name tags or if they have a distinctive beard or something. But they know it's Elijah. And Jesus is bleached white. And one of my favorite saying, you know, saying, and Peter, not knowing what to say, said, right? <laughs> and then the heaven, the clouds open, and the voice of Yahweh descends. And Yahweh says, one thing, one imperatival sentence. Now, I'm one of those people that says, like, look, when the heavens open and the voice of God descends and he says one imperative, like, you should listen to that imperative and take it seriously. And what does he say? Of course, he's so Yahweh, he never says anything new. He quotes the Torah. You know, as I have said through my prophets, he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up future prophets for him. I will put my words in their mouth and you shall listen to them or to him, right? This deal, who you listen to, determines what you can know in this world. It determines whether you're blind, whether you're corrupted, whether you see your nakedness as something to be ashamed of or to be proud of. We have to wait till the new heavens and new earth to get proud of it again, right? It's in our shame we wear our clothes. Right? We all, always have to remind myself of that when I'm at a thrift store getting new clothes. This is all for my shame. Um, but this is the story of Scripture from beginning all the way to the end. Who you listen to determines whether you see it or whether you don't. If you want to learn how to be a radiologist, it doesn't make any sense to go down to you know, the corner to the hot dog stand and say, teach me how to see collapsed lungs on x-rays. Now, it might be the case that that guy actually knows how to do it, right? It actually wouldn't surprise me at all. They're like, yes, I'm a doctor in my home country, right? Um, but, uh, but that's not where we go. You go to somebody who is authenticated to teach you, to point over your shoulder and say, do you see how I see, and to walk you through a ritual process until you see it, at least get a grasp of it, and then develop the skill.